In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, upon God, Amen. We will continue our Bible study in Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the scripture. It is composed of 22 sections. Every section has 8 verses. And 22, they are arranged on the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. In the same section, every verse starts with the same letter. For example, the first section, let's say it is alpha. So every verse starts by alpha. Second section, let's say beta. Every verse of the eight verses start with the letter V, and so on. In each verse, the word of God is mentioned. Either your word, your testimony, your statutes, your judgment, etc. Except very, very few examples. For example, in the Bible study tonight, we will find one verse that does not have the word of God in it, which is verse 84. For example, in 81, your word. In 82, your word. 83, your statutes. But 84, there is no reference to the word of God. 85, your law. 86, your commandments. 87, your precepts. 88, the testimony of your mouth. So almost in every single verse, there is reference to the word of God. We finished already 10 sections. So if 10 sections, and every section has 8 verses, so how many verses we finished? 80, right? Then tonight we'll start from verse 81. Tonight we'll study the 11th and the 12th section of this psalm. From 81 to 88, this is the 11th. From 89 to 96, this is actually the 12th. What is the 11th letter in the Hebrew alphabet? Kaf. Kaf is the 11th letter of Hebrew alphabet. So each verse from verse 81 to 88 start with the letter Kaf. And this passage, the 11th passage, proclaim that God is the answer to the things of life. In our desperation, frustration, trials, God is the answer. So in section 11, it explains the psalmist's desperation the persecutor's evil intent and God's faithfulness to David through his word. Section 12 from verse 89 to 96 each verse begins with the letter Lamb which is the 12th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This portion of the psalm begins and ends with a comparison between temporal and eternal things. 
for example, we are temporal. Man and earth are temporal. But scripture, the word of God, is eternal. In the former section, David's soul was fainting, dying. But here, the good man looks out of self and perceives that the Lord does not get weary. Neither is there any failure in his world. He was looking at himself and he found himself is fainting. But when he started to look outside himself at the word of God and at God himself, God doesn't get weary and his word never fails. God is faithful and had pledged his faithfulness to every generation, from generation to generation. And he does not forget anyone from Adam to the end of the ages. The 11th section, the theme of it, fainting from affliction, revived by the word of God. So when we feel that we are fainting from affliction, the word of God can revive us. Section 12, saved by the word settled in heaven. Settled in heaven because it's eternal, never failing. So we are saved through the word of God and his promises because these are settled in heaven. Verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. So the psalmist gives a sense of desperation. My soul faints. His soul aches for God so much that it faints in waiting for the salvation he needs. Faints from the waiting. Yet he has hope in God's word. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. Faints has the idea of coming to the end. I am fainting, I'm dying. Fainting is loss of strength, collapse. So here the psalmist felt that his soul was so weak, no strength, that it was unable to stand. He is saying he has no other hope than his hope in God's unfailing word, in God's promises and his unfailing promises. This place of desperate, yet not despairing, is known to the people of God. Like St. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, who are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, who are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I am desperate, but not falling into despair. He said, my soul fenced your salvation. Your salvation can refer to the coming of Messiah, as if David is speaking on behalf of all the Testament people and all the believers and the souls of the faithful and the prophets who have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. 
grace of the incarnation and the salvation. And also we read in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13, Abraham saw it, saw the salvation of the Lord at a distance, and so did others. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. These righteous people can say, my soul faints for your salvation. And this is every Christian hope, crying with St. John, Amen, come Lord Jesus Christ, our soul faints for your salvation. But I hope in your word, in contrast to the sense of weakness and fainting and failing, the psalmist found to hope and strength in God's word. Verse 82, my eyes fail from searching your world. So when his soul is fainting, he starts to read the scripture. And he read and read and read to the extent his eyes are failing, he lost his sight from searching the word of God, saying, when will you comfort me? Even here his eyes fail. He has looked so long for the promised help and it has not come. This indicates how diligently the psalmist read and studied God's word. Who among us can say my eyes fails from searching your word? That's why St. John Chrysostom said David's psalms bring forth a fountain of tears. My eyes fails from searching your word. He studied so hard that his eye hurts. But St. Augustine says, Behold that praiseworthy and blessed failing. If our eyes are failing because we read the Bible often and often and often, that is a blessed and praiseworthy failing. Not arising from the infirmity of mind, but from the strength of his longing for the promise of God. So not because of his infirmity of mind, his eyes start to fail, but because his persistence and his longing for the promise of God. That's why he said for your world, my eyes fail from searching your world, saying, when will you comfort me? When will you comfort me? This was why the psalmist searched so diligently. He searched so diligently to find comfort in his present distress, to find comfort in the word of God. Lord, how long? This is a constant cry of God's servants under affliction or persecution. For I have become like a wine skin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. Wine skin, it's a bottle made of the skin of animals. Such a bottle 
being hung up in a smoky chimney, what will happen? It will be dry and withered. And this will be good for nothing and will thus be symbol of distress, discomfort, and sorrow. So when he said, I have become like a wine's skin in smoke, means I dried, I am withered, I am good for nothing. So by affliction and sorrow, the psalmist had become to a state which would be well represented by such wine's skin bottle in smoke. Meaning, the psalmist felt weak, as if he was a fragile wine skin that had turned dry and had become black with smoke. His soul and spiritual life felt very dry. It may also have respect unto the form of his body from fasting and waiting for the Lord. He became dry and withered. But some understand, some commentators understand the image here of the good results of the discipline of suffering. They suppose that there is a reference to the custom of making wine by putting it in the smoke. So the metaphor here means what? The psalmist is being exposed to suffering, to soften and mature his character as they put the wine in smoke so it mature the wine and its taste. Though the process is being continued so long that he is becoming unrecognizable. When I am going through suffering, this actually can build my character. As St. James said, consider it all joy when you go through trials, because trial will make you perfect. Trial will make your character mature. But despite his sense of weakness, he was determined to not forget God's statutes. For I have become like a wine skin in a smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. Weakness should not make us forget the word of God. Trials and affliction should not make us forget the word of God. Actually, the word of God will be our help during this time. It's obvious that the psalmist has gone through an intense state of affliction and was on the verge of despair. If it was not for his hope in the promises of God for salvation, that's written in his word. St. Jerome says, he who brings his member to death, as St. Paul told us, put to death your members. Putting to death means to put the lust in our organs to death. And feels that he vainly walk in immortal world. When we walk in the pleasures of this mortal world, that is vanity, will not cease to say, I become like wine skin. From fasting, from asceticism, he became like wine skin. 
every trace of lust in me has dried out and my knees became weak because of fasting and prostration. So a person who actually put to death his members and the lusts of the flesh, he can say, I became like a wine skin in a smoke, yet I do not forget your status. That the reflection of St. Jerome on this verse. Verse 84, How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? How many are the days of your servant? This can be understood as the days of my life. They are few, like the days of every man. So he's saying, my life is short. When you will execute judgment on my enemies? He knows that his life is like a vapor. He's like the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow. But also, how many are the days of your servant? Maybe not the days of his life, maybe the days of the adversity and affliction, which seems to some extent that this is the meaning he intended here. How many are the days of the affliction of your servant? Why you don't execute judgment on my enemies? So this is a rhetorical question. He's not asking an answer, but as if he is saying, what are you waiting for? When are you going to execute judgment upon those who persecute me? So the sense of weakness led the psalmist to despair that God would execute judgment against those who persecuted him. I don't want to doubt that you will execute judgment, but until when? How long? It takes you to execute judgment. He prays not for power to revenge himself. He did not say, give me power so to have revenge by myself. No. But you asking God, God would take to himself the vengeance that belonged to him. Asking God to execute judgment. He did not tell him, give me power to execute judgment on my enemies. No. You execute judgment. And as I told you, verse 84, one of the very few verses in this psalm that does not specifically mention the word of God. Almost in every single verse in Psalm 119, there is reference to the word of God, except very few verses. 84 is one of them. Why he did not mention the word of God in verse 84? Perhaps his personal weakness and a sense of injustice have led the psalmist to such despair that he has lost the focus on God's word. That's why he did not make reference to the word of God. So the psalmist here utters what was the dread of each generation of Israel, addressed lest it should have passed away before the day of deliverance should arrive. You know, every generation in Israel, and even in the New Testament, when we face persecution, the church is persecuted, we say, how long you will wait, God? When you will execute judgment? We want to see your justice. 
Why are you waiting? Execute judgment. So this verse expresses our condition when we are persecuted for our faith. Verse 85, the proud have dug pits for me, snares, which is not according to your law. The psalmist refers in this verse 85 to his enemies as those who are proud, those who are overly confident in themselves and not in God, and have no fear of God before their eyes. In their pride they persecuted him, and taking glory in this, they are actively trying to trap him. That's why they are digging pits. So the idea of digging pits paints a picture of a hunter trying to ensnare his prey. They were deliberate in their plans against David. They make it their business to lay traps for the psalmist. They in this showed their enmity to God himself. Why? Which is not according to your law. What they were doing? Not according to the word of God. So this conduct in motive and in means is utterly against the word of God. They were unjust, not according to God's law. So David's state was hearing a type and figure of the state of both Christ and Christians. When they persecuted Christ or persecuting the church, they are digging pits, not according to the law of God. Verse 86, All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They persecute me wrongfully because they don't follow your law. Your commandments are faithful. There is no commandment that has injustice. What's my prayer now? Help me. While God's commandments are faithful, true and trustworthy, the enemies persistently pursue the believers with a lie, wrongfully. So the psalmist found faithfulness and refuge in the commandment of God. This was a strong contrast to the persecution he found from his enemies. They persecute me wrongfully. In such time, what our prayer should be, he prayed the logical prayer, help me. 87. They almost made an end of me on earth. I almost died, but I did not forsake your precepts. So the point again is emphasized in verse 87 through repetition. Nothing would make the psalmist forsake God's word, even if they put his life to an end. He would attach the word of God in good times and in bad times. The psalmist in verse 87 was almost dead. They almost made an end of me on earth. Yet, he would not forsake the word of God. The enemies were nearly successful in their objective to destroy him. But he will not forsake the word of God. 
some interpreted as they want to cut him off from the land of uh, promise and thus blot out his name from God's inheritance. So either way, the point remains that they wanted to kill him and they were nearly successful in doing so. Even in the face of this clear and present danger, the psalmist remains faithful. St. Augustine applies this to the church, the persecuted church. There was a great slaughter of the martyrs while proclaiming your truth, O God, and testifying to it. On their tongue, the psalmist cries out to God, saying, Help me, help us, but we did not forsake your precepts. Verse 88, the last verse in section 11, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Revive me. It was repeated several times in this psalm, like verse 25, 37, 40, 50. The psalmist looked to God for new life, revival. The request is for God to pull him out of the deep. Even if I fall in this pit, revive me. Yet he knew that this was not deserved. This revival I don't deserve it. But by someone who loves God's word as he has. Even by someone who loves God's word. Why you are saying this? He said, revive me according to your loving kindness. Revive me because you are loving. Because you are merciful. Because of your kindness. Not because I deserve it. I'm not saying since I did not forget your commandments, so revive me. No, he did not say this but revive me according to your loving kindness, not according to what I deserve or what I earned. So the psalmist spoke freely, yes, about his great love for God and his word, but his trust was in the goodness and the grace and the loving kindness of God, not in his own love for God and his word. So he's asking to be revived, not because I love you and I love your word, but because of your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your loving kindness. He knows God so intimately through his word that he knows God's character and nature and can therefore appeal to God's person. I'm appealing, I'm appealing to your loving kindness. Then second part of the verse he said, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. He did not say, revive me so I can enjoy life on earth. Revive me so I can defeat my enemies. No. He said the main purpose, I want you to revive me because I want to keep the testimony of your mouth. I want to keep your word. So the psalmist understood the purpose of a revived spirit within him to keep the commandment of God. So he's not saying revive me to enjoy a season of spiritual enjoyment, but it was for a more faithful, obedient walk with God. Revive me so I'll be obedient to your word, be faithful to your commandment. The psalmist rightly understood that the word of God actually came from the mouth of God. 
so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. So he understood that the word of God is the word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes, God used the human authors like David, Moses, Joshua. Those human authors expressed their personality through the inspired writing. Yet God so directed those human authors that what they wrote could accurately be called the word of the mouth of God. The Bible can never get out of date, never be wrong, because it is the word of the mouth of God. It will give us the strength we need to fulfill the purpose for which God has chosen each of us. So when we know the Bible is true, is the word of God, this gives me strength that I need to fulfill the purpose for which God has called me and chosen me. Section 12, start by verse 89. In the next eight verses, the psalmist argues from assurance of God's promises and persistence the observance of his law. He argued that the word of God is eternal, everlasting, not temporal. And the promises of God also permanent in this life and in the life after. This part of the psalm begins and ends with a comparison between temporal and eternal things. Eternal things and temporal things. Man and earth are temporal, but scripture are eternal. Verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The psalmist meditated on the unchanging nature of God's word. Because it is settled in heaven, it will not change on earth. Earth can change, but heaven no, heaven of heavens and is out of the reach of its critiques and enemies. Here on earth, many people cast doubt on the word of God, criticize the word of God, attack the word of God, but they cannot actually attack the word of God in heaven, because the word of God that is settled in heaven, it is out of their reach. What God had ordained as law would always remain law. What God had affirmed would always remain true, and what he had promised would be sure forever. Nothing would change. The psalmist believed that the scripture come from heaven, not from earth, from Lord, from his mouth, and not from man. He exactly said what St. Paul, hundreds of years later, wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, this all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God's word does not become irrelevant or grow old. I cannot say, no, I cannot apply the word of God during this time. It is eternally applicable because it expresses the eternal values of an eternal God. Sometimes we don't see that the word of God stands firm on earth. 
for example, when we see how the wicked are exalted, but it stands quite firm in heaven. For God will certainly carry it out anything he promised. Sometimes here on earth, when we see the prosperity of the wicked, we say, but God did not promise in the scripture prosperity for the wicked. But this is a temporal. Like we read in Psalm 73, when Asaph started to stumble when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, until he looked at their end. So we can see the word of God stand firm in heaven after everything is finished. So if the believer suffered brief tribulation, he should not doubt the word of God or the promises because it will be turned into everlasting joy. In the same way, the short glory of the wicked will be turned into eternal disgrace and punishment. If you don't see how the word of God is fulfilled here on earth, wait. Wait till the end. Verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You established the earth and it abides. So the psalmist repeats or explains the same idea when he adds your faithfulness endures to all generations. Your faithfulness, O God, stand firm too. So the Psalms believed that the settled word of God was a demonstration of his faithfulness. And this faithfulness extends across all generations. So the word of God is firm of God. God is faithful. If he promised something, he will fulfill it. And the generation of people change and pass away. But God's promises do not change. God's faithfulness is not limited to a single group of people in a specific time, in a specific place. No. It flows from generation to generation to everyone. As St. Mary in her praise, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. And after he spoke about the faithfulness of God, he said, you established the earth and it abides. So David uses the earth as illustration how permanent the faithfulness of God is. God established the earth and the earth abides. So in the same way, the faithfulness of God. God laid the foundation of the earth so firm and sure that it cannot be removed till the last day. And though one generation has passed after the generation, the earth abides where it was. See from Adam until now how many people died, but the earth is the same. As firm and stable and never failing, the earth is the same way the faithfulness of God. So as you see generation dies and generation come and the earth is the same, the faithfulness of God is the same from generation to generation. Verse 91 
they continue this day according to your ordinances for all are your servants in verse 91 the psalmist providing evidence of the power authority and stability of God's word the word of God itself your ordinances is what established the earth and caused it abundant how God created the earth by his word and how God is keeping the earth by his word if the effect of the word of God kept the earth established then the word of God in itself should be established and permanent So God spoke the physical universe into existence by his word. He created the physical world from nothing. And therefore, there is sufficient power in the word of God. Which means the word of God stands in authority, settled in heaven, and thus must stand as an authority over the earth. These two witnesses, heaven and earth, stand to this day to testify to the ability of the holy word of God. And as the earth obeys God's commandment, sunrise, sunset, the moving of the earth around itself, the moving of the earth around the sun, all this, they are following God's instruction. They are under the control of God. Why? Because they show that they are his servants by the conformity of their movement to the law that God set for them. So when he said, they continue this day, they abide on heaven and earth, continue until this day according to your ordinances. For all are your servants. All are your creation, heaven and earth are your creation, your servants. They follow your ordinances. So the Psalms looked at the created order, like as I said, sunrise, sunset, moving of the earth, and understood that all creation ultimately serve God and his purpose, because they are your servants. So the scripture is sufficient in time of personal trial to find comfort. That's why in verse 92 he said, Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. Who kept me, who revived me during my affliction? Your law, your word, O God. So the scripture is sufficient in times of personal trial. As if he is saying, because your law is my delight, I did not perish during my affliction. What got him through his affliction was focusing his joy and delight upon God's law and word. The psalmist knew that without his relationship with God and his relationship with the word, he would not have been sustained in the season of affliction. And this is a big lesson to us. When we go through a difficult time, it's our relationship with God and our relationship with the Word of God that will preserve us 
during the time of affliction and hardships. And I want you to notice the word delight here. Delight goes beyond mere Bible knowledge. Goes beyond just reading the Bible every day. So he's saying, unless your law had been my delight, I am delighted to read your, your word and to live by them and to abide them. If I am not delighted in your word, I would then have been perished in my affliction. So the delight goes beyond the Bible knowledge. It is the relationship with God in and through his word that gives his strength and his spiritual nourishment. Verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. How can I forget them? They revived me. Verse 93 is another declaration of the scripture sufficiency which emphasizes the ability of God to save and to revive by his word. He uses the same word here to describe his everlasting loyalty as he did to describe the eternal authority of God's word in heaven. So he said, I will never forget your precept, for by them you have given me life. So the best evidence of our love to the word of God is to never forget it, even during the time of affliction. He is saying, as long as your word lasts, so I will remain faithful to you. I will never forget your precept. So the psalmist remembered also the life-giving power and character of God's word. Your word give me life. For by them, by your word, by your precept, you have given me life. It was this life that strengthened him in the season of affliction. God's word bring life because it is a life as Lord Jesus said in John chapter 6 the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life and St. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 4 for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 94, I am yours. Beautiful. I am yours. Save me. I belong to you. Save me. For I have sought your precepts. So verse 94 is another declaration of the sufficiency of the word of God. It started by plea to be saved. I am yours. Save me. So it is a desperate plea to be saved. And he begins with an affirmation that he is God's own possession. I am yours. I belong to you. This simple two-word prayer, save me, save me, has its foundation in the ownership of God. Because I am yours, I belong to you, then save me. 
I am yours, it speaks of the wonderful relationship between the psalmist and God, flowing from the word of God. He belongs to God, therefore God must save him. And also he said, for I have sought your precepts. The basis of this confidence was a relationship built upon what? Upon the word of God, your precepts. I have sought your precepts. This was not a relationship built just upon feeling, but upon the solid foundation of the word of God. Verse 9-5 The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. Because the wicked are temporal, but your testimonies are eternal. So the psalmist returned in verse 95 to this wicked individual who wait for him to destroy him. While they do their worst against him, they wait for him to destroy him. He will not fear, but find refuge in the word of God. I will consider your testimony. He comforts himself in the word of God as his protection. These enemies are known by their fruit, wickedness, that's their fruit. And known by their action, they wait with patience to destroy him. And known by their intention, the desire to destroy him. But scripture is more than sufficient to equip and protect him from these wicked people. Even though the wicked people wait for me to destroy me, but the psalmist is completely devoted to God from the confidence that the psalmist has in God's testimony. The promises in God's testimony give him this confidence and hope that God will save him. Last verse in our Bible study tonight, verse 96. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. So anything that looks perfect here on earth, rich, wealth, fame, prosperity, there is an end for it. But your word is exceedingly broad. There is no end for your word. Verse 96, like the book of Ecclesiastes, the vanity of the world, and carry a very similar meaning to the book of Ecclesiastes. The psalmist claims that he has witnessed all good things, even great things, perfect and complete things come to an end. As I told you, everything comes to an end. Wealth, prosperity, fame. He has seen how complete they may see to us, like wisdom, power, glory, riches. And the greatest and the most perfect accomplishment and enjoyment in this world are exceedingly frail and soon to come to an end. Everything comes to an end. Life of kings, emperors, presidents came to an end. The only exception to this, everything is vanity, but there is one thing that endures, one thing that stands forever, one thing that remains unchanged, the commandment of God. Your commandments is exceedingly broad. There is no end. Christ said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
The psalmist knows that the word he reads are from the same mouth, from the same God who spoke the world into being. God who created by his word, the same word it's written in the scripture. And therefore the word of God carry the same power of creation. They can create new person in us. The word of God has such height and depth. He said broad. So there is height and depth of the doctrine. Mysteries in it can never be fully reached and comprehended. And such breadth as is not to be measured. The word of God is broad. For the extent and for the continuance. Extent in the place, continuance in time. It is useful to all people in all times, all conditions, all purposes. To inform, to direct, to revive, to comfort, sanctify, and to save. It is of everlasting truth and significance. The word of God will never deceive nor forsake those who trust in it. As all worldly things. Riches can let you down. Prosperity can let you down. Anything can let you down, but the word of God will never let you down. So the psalmist set his mind upon the Lord and contemplated his word and faithfulness. And though he faced hardships and affliction, he was strengthened and sustained by learning and living by the word of God, which is boundless and never fails. According to St. Basil, the commandment to love God and to love our neighbor and to love our enemy is an extremely broad commandment because it covers all things. If you love God, your neighbor and your enemy, this is the whole Bible. It covers everything. And according to St. Augustine, love is the breadth of the commandment. That's why he said, love God and do whatever you want to do. When he said your commandment is broad, it is the commandment of love. To love God, to love enemies, to love our neighbors, to love oneself. Not in the selfish love, but in the Christian love. This actually concludes our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Yes. Can we say that the psalmist here used the word judgment? To keep the same pattern that he said, your commandment, your... No, judgment here in verse 84 uh, is not the word of God, but judgment here to execute punishment, your judgment, your justice on my enemies. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute punishment, punishment on those who persecute me? So the word judgment here... In, the, in this context, doesn't mean the word of God. Just the punishment. The punishment and the justice for his enemies. Thank you. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.